Cameron Rainier, that may not be good English, but that's a good word. There ain't no sinner that he can't save. So, brother, we love you. We, are, we got the power team in missions now. So, church, I'm grateful for the two of them and uh, the work that they are doing in our missions. So, 1 Corinthians chapter 13 is where we are. Before we get going today, I do want to let you know, uh, many of you may know Bob and Nancy Ravinius. Uh, their children, uh, Rich and um, Susan Whitlow, were members here for many years. They've probably been away probably 10, 15 years maybe uh, uh, since they've been attending here. But Bob and Nancy are here every week with us. Uh, their grandson was the young man that was killed out on Pierce's Road with that bicycle accident. Uh, he was riding his bike. It was dark and was hit, and it took his life. So if you will pray for uh, them, uh, the, the Raviniuses, if any of you would like to write them a letter or just make a phone call, especially if you know them and are friends with them, I know they would appreciate the care and the concern. And as a couple of people have asked me this morning, about when and where the funeral will be, we do not know yet, but be praying. His name was William Whitlow, and uh, 19 years old, in just a tragic uh, accident this past week. So if you will be lifting them up, I would greatly, greatly appreciate that. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 uh, is where we are today. In 1 Corinthians 13, if you remember, we've been talking about spiritual gifts. Literally from chapter 12 all the way to chapter 14, Paul is addressing an issue that was going on within the church. And within the church at this moment, there are these divisions that are occurring. We know early on that there were divisions because some people liked Paul and some people liked Apollos. And there was divisions over personality. We know that there were issues even around things like the Lord's Supper and how they were taking the Lord's Supper. And Paul had to remind them of the holiness and the reverence of, of that uh, meal that they were taking and how they were supposed to do it. And today, as we continue this discussion on spiritual gifts, we come to a chapter that most of you in this room are going to be very familiar with. If you've been to a wedding, you've seen these words. You've seen these verses because they are on the napkins and they're on the walls and they're on boards where they handwrite it and all those other things. Because when we hear 1 Corinthians chapter 13, most of us, if we're familiar with it, we simply call it the love chapter. And most of us, while it is a, a description of love and while it does help us understand what love truly is, we don't want to miss the context of why he's having this discussion about love. Because remember, the greater context is spiritual gifts. And what Paul is going to be saying to us today is that, you know what, it doesn't matter what our giftings are. It doesn't matter what ministries we do. It doesn't matter really most of the things by which we measure our lives against each other. He says none of those things really matter. In the end, he says, if you want to know what it is to be a spiritual, maturing believer, he says, listen, don't look at gifts. Don't look at whether you can speak in tongues or whether you can heal or whether you can prophesy or whether you can preach or whether you can teach. He says those things ultimately mean nothing. He says what matters in the life of a believer is that you love. Now, folks, that ought to make a lot of sense to us as believers. Because when we think about the importance of love, when we think about what the Bible has to say about love, number one, we understand that the Bible says that God is what? He's love. So there's a personification of love in Jesus. It's the very nature of Christ. It's the very nature of God the Father that when we describe love, it's not a feeling. It's not just some thought that we have. Literally, it's, it's a person. And not just a person, but what we find is that we can't think of love as feeling because as we define it today and as we look at it today, he's going to say that it is an action. It is a choice. Love is a verb, not a noun. We get the picture of it wrong all the time that love has to do with the actions that we take. If we define it just as feelings, we could define it as lust. We could define it in ways that we know seem strange even to our own minds. Have you ever seen somebody that abuses another person and then they stand there and they say, but I what? But I love them. And you're going, wait a minute. That doesn't make sense. It has to be more than a feeling. Or a spouse who, who just totally ridicules their, chil their children and their wife and, and maybe the home is just a complete wreck because of the way that they treat each other and yet they'll stand there and say, well, listen, there's nobody I love more than them and you're kind of scratching your head going, but what you're doing and, and what you're saying 
they don't add up because love isn't meant to just be a descriptor. It's not meant to just be a feeling. It is a choice that we make. And he literally goes on to say in this section that, you know what? Forget about the gifts. Forget about all the things that you are measuring yourselves by. He says, ultimately, there is only one thing that matters. Do you love? Now, I would go as far as to say, if we answer that question rightly, he says, listen, that's going to make a difference in whether the world comes to Christ. He says that the world, even the lost, they can recognize that we are disciples of Jesus. They can see God in us when we choose to love one another. That's how they know. And if love isn't there, it destroys our families. It destroys our churches, no matter what else good is happening. We can be going and doing missions around the world. But if we don't love, if our motivation isn't love, because you see, here's the thing that we're going to learn today is you can do a lot of good things and actually not love. Even in the midst of doing good things, what we consider to be good things, they may salve our conscience. They may make us feel better about ourselves. But sometimes even the things that we do and we say they're acts of love, they actually have more to do with us and less to do with the person who is supposed to be the object. So let's talk about love today. I love this quote. I found it this week and I thought, wow, what a beautiful thought on this text. G. Campbell Morgan wrote that examining this chapter is like dissecting a flower to understand it. He says, if you tear it apart too much, you lose its beauty. And so I want to take this whole chapter. Somebody said, you're going to try to clear that whole chapter in a week. I am because I want to keep it in a simplified form so that you can look and see and understand in one teaching the beauty of what this verse and what these verses are trying to teach us today. Because they really are beautiful and they have the power to transform our lives, our families, our churches. The reality is you could spend a lifetime and it wouldn't be sufficient to really unveil what is in these verses. I'm thankful that there's going to be a day that, you know what, I'm going to leave this body and I'm going to stand before Jesus one day and I'm going to see things even more clearly than I do today. Our flesh, our sin, our way of thinking, our prejudices, everything in our life really tears away at our thoughts of what true love really is supposed to to be. And so I'm grateful that you know what? That it takes a lifetime to fully understand, to fully live out what these verses are talking about. He wants the Corinthian church to remember this morning that giftedness, and I want you to hear this, is not the measure of maturity. The display of love is. He's going to go on and say, and we're going to study this morning, that gifts are just temporary containers. You see, the gifts are given to us so that, you know what, sometimes people might believe in the Old Testament and the New Testament, there were things like miracles that occurred so that people could see, so that people could understand it would give validity to a prophet, it would give validity to a king, it would give validity to Jesus when he came and spoke and people would see the miracles and they would come to understand that he's more than just a man that he was God in the flesh. There were many times that tongues and other things were meant to draw attention to the Spirit of God working in the lives of people. But I want you to see this morning that they are just vessels. They are containers. They're not the work itself. The work itself that we are to have in this world is to love. If you don't believe me, what are the two greatest commandments? Love the Lord your God. That's, that's all that he has ever asked from us. When you think of all the things that you think, what does God expect of me? I mean, we start to come up with all these lists. He says, you can boil it down to one word. Love. Love me with everything you have. Body, soul, mind, strength. And then he turns around and says, and the only other thing that I really require, the two rules, if I could boil them down to two, that I want, what I want, is for you to love me and for you to love others. The first one takes care of the first four commandments. The next one takes care of the next six commandments. If you love, you don't steal. If you love, you don't murder. If you love, you don't covet. If you love, you don't commit adultery. 
If you love God, you don't worship other gods. If you love God, you don't use his name in vain and disrespect him and his character and his purposes. So this is extremely important, what we're talking about today. Let me read to you, because the gifts of the temporary containers, love is the work itself. And so here's what he says. In chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians, he says, If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but I do not have love, then I have become a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy, and I know all mysteries and all knowledge, and I have all faith, so as to remove mountains, but I do not have love, I'm nothing. If I give all of my possessions to feed the poor, if I surrender my body to be burned, but I do not have love, all of that profits me nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It is not jealous. Love does not brag. It is not arrogant. It does not act unbecomingly. It doesn't seek its own. It's not provoked. It does not take into account a wrong suffered. It does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things. It believes all things. It hopes all things. It endures all things. Love never fails. But if there are gifts of prophecy, they'll be done away with. If there are tongues, they'll cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child. I think like a child. I reason like a child. But when I became a man, I did away with childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully just as I have been fully known. But now faith, hope, and love abide these three. But the greatest of these is love. Number one, I want you to see that he begins with love is essential. You can't say that I'm a believer in Jesus Christ and not love. Do you hear me? And I mean love the way we talk about here. Love the way that God loves. We are to be the expression of who God is. If you remember when he saves us and he changes us, he starts to conform us not into what we want to be or we think we should be. He conforms us so that we are made into the image of his son. We literally are becoming like Jesus. That is salvation. Salvation is not just that Jesus died for you and he can forgive you and one day you'll go to heaven. It is life transformation now. It is life transformation today. It changes everything about who we are. And we suddenly have the capacity to do what we couldn't do before we knew Jesus. And that greatest thing that he wants to accomplish is love in us. Folks, it's the essential. Look at what he says here. He says, if you could speak in tongues of men and of angels, if you could prophesy, if you could speak with knowledge and all of this wisdom, I mean, I want you to think for a second. I mean, he's basically telling you, think of the greatest preacher that you could ever imagine, the greatest man that, that you could imagine that has the most knowledge and the best abilities and the most giftedness. I mean, if someone could speak in tongues, you'd literally probably look at that person and think, wow, they're spirit-filled, and you could see the spirit moving in them and through them. And he says, even if you have all of those things, I mean, think about what he says. If you have all faith so that you could say to a mountain, move, and it moves. He says, but you don't have love. Think of what he says. He says, then you become a clanging symbol that nobody cares to listen to. Have you ever heard a preacher that you were almost convinced he would be just as satisfied if people went to hell as they did heaven? I have. They're all judgment, no grace. 
that when they talk about sinners, you almost can't even feel the love and the message that they're giving. Now, folks, I want you to hear me. We have to preach truth, and the truth is that man is sinful, and man is condemned before God because of his sinfulness. His sin is leading him to death and to hell, and we've got to help people understand that they are hopeless and helpless without the salvation of Jesus Christ. But at some point, we have to turn the corner, and once we help them realize their need and their sinfulness, shouldn't we offer hope? Even to the vilest of sinners, shouldn't we find a way to love them even if we perceive them to be our enemy? It's why so many believers have problems with us going to places like Muslim countries because in our minds we think they are our enemy. Folks, there is a spiritual battle that is being waged for the souls of men. And we don't wrestle against flesh and blood but against principalities, right? Those people need to hear the gospel just like you needed to hear the gospel. And you need to love them because, listen, the only difference between you and them is you were born here and they were born there. That's the only difference. You were raised in a culture that's Christian. You were raised in a home that's Christian. You were raised in freedom. They weren't. They believe what they believe because it's all they've ever known. They act the way they act because that's the way everyone else acts around them. And the reality is they have known suffering and they have known pain and they have known hurt. And do we have a compassion within us, a capacity to recognize that it doesn't do any good to just throw out judgment and offer no salvation? And to indeed love those who don't love us back. Folks, it's Jesus sitting on the cross being nailed there by Roman guards who are ridiculing him and spitting on him and beating him. And literally, he looks at them and what are his words to them? Forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He says, what good is our preaching and our knowledge? What good is our faith? What good is our preaching if we can't love People, then our words will fall on deaf ears. Think about that when you're on social media. Are you determined to win the argument or are you determined to win the soul? Those are two very different ends. We can beat people up with Scripture or we can help them see the hope that lies within Scripture. He goes on and says, what good does it do to give? I mean, this is what kind of freaks me out about these verses in this whole section. Because he's constantly going to things that we would say, no, those are good things. Like the Lord's Supper, that's a good thing. How could you screw that up? But the church can screw it up, can't they? Because that's what people do the best. We take good things and we screw it up. And so rather than being a meal where everybody comes together and is served and is equal, they they take sides and they take priority and and they consider others less than themselves. And all this mess is going on around the Lord's Supper. They're not even holding it in reverence. And he calls them and says, listen, you've got to change. This is meant to be a gift. This is meant to be an act of worship. This is meant to be a blessing to the church and you've got it all messed up. And then he looks at spiritual gifts. How could you mess spiritual gifts up? They're gifts. You can't screw up gifts, right? You just receive it. And you let it bless you and you bless others through it. It seems simple, right? But no, they can't even get that right. Because now they're going, well, look, I have superior gifts. I'm more. You're less. I'm greater. You're not greater. This gift's better than that gift. This gift makes a bigger difference than that gift. And they start to fight inwardly. And Paul is saying to them, look at what you're doing. You have all these gifts. God is blessing the church. And you're missing the only thing that matters, love. Giving should be one of those things where you're like, you can't mess up giving. But you can. You ever roll down your window a crack and just give them a dollar, almost like you're doing somebody a favor? You know what those people need more than a dollar? They need Jesus. You know how they'll get to Jesus? 
because you actually stop and get to know them. You talk to most of those people, you know what it is? They're nothing in the eyes of people that drive by all day, every day. We judge them, we don't even know their circumstance. And even if we knew their circumstance, does it mean that even if they're living poorly or not rightly or they have issues that we can't bless? That we can't be generous? You know what most of them would love more than anything? Because I do it all the time. I don't just roll my window and I give them a dollar. I say, listen, I'm over here and I'm about to get coffee. You want to go sit down and get coffee? Some say yes, some say no. But you know the difference it makes when you actually know their name? And you stop and you look them in the eye and you actually see them? And you try to get to know them? And they feel like, for once, somebody actually wants to be with them. You see, you can give, and all it really does is solve your own conscience or, or salve your own conscience that, hey, you did something and you didn't drive by them. But let me ask you a question. Do you really love them? I saw something in the paper uh, or on the Internet yesterday that I thought was just a beautiful example. Two of the churches in our pastor's network, they started working with one of the others. It's not I choose. It's another agency that works with unwed mothers or, or crisis pregnancies. Two of the churches went to them and said, we'll do anything that you need us to do. Most churches would be satisfied with, let me give you $500, or let me give you $1,000, or let me, whatever. We'll just throw some cash at it. And usually it's not the members per se. It's just the church makes a decision and we're this big entity that just doles out money here, there, but it's not personal. That church, I loved it. It's Passage Church right up the road, Matt Walton, Green Pines, Jared. Scott is the pastor there. That agency called them and said, listen, we don't need money. What we need is we've got a young lady who, if she chooses to keep this baby, she's going to be kicked out of her house and she will have nowhere to live. There's a lot of ways you could solve that. Well, I'll put her up for a night. Here's $50. We can put her at the Ramada. Some of those families, you know what they did of those churches? They took that lady in until she had that baby. Both of those churches worked together. That lady came to Christ. That's what the church should be. We can't just talk about it. We've got to be about it, right? There's got to be feet to the love that we say that we have because even our giving cannot have love in it and not have love part of it. But then he goes into this discussion about love examined. Not only is it essential, but he wants to examine love for these believers. And it's important today that we take a look at this, at what love truly looks like. And as I get into this, what I want you to do is, as, as we read that a minute ago, it's easy to say love is patient, love is kind. It's not rude. It keeps no record around. We can go on. Love bears all things, hopes all things. What I want you to do is I want you to see that this really is a description of God because God is what? Love. And when we look at those verses, you would do well to just put Jesus in there. Because aren't you glad that in your life Jesus has been patient, kind? Aren't you glad that he's not keeping record of wrong, that he paid for sin once for all and every day his mercies are new? Aren't you glad that when the weight of sin for the entire world needed to be borne on somebody's back, that Jesus said, you know what, I love them and I'll bear the weight of the world's sin. When it says that love never fails, I thought, I read this this week and I loved it. It said, love never fails all the way to the cross. Because that's ultimately what Jesus did. He loved us so much that he took upon himself our sins and he died in our place and he gave all the man could give to say, I love you and I'm willing to forgive you if you will surrender, if you will believe, if you will follow me. But I don't want you to stop at just putting Jesus' name there. 
You know what the real test is today? When you read that text, what does it sound like when you put your name there? You say, well, Aaron, I'm not Jesus. Well, listen, he's conforming you into his image. We are supposed to love like Jesus. And I'm not saying that anybody in this room is going to love perfectly. But is the story of your life, if you read this chapter in front of your children, if you read this chapter in front of your coworkers, if you read this chapter in front of your spouse, in front of your neighbors, could you put your name in the front of that and just like Paul say, listen, follow me, I'm following Jesus. When you see me, you see him. That's the way it's supposed to be as believers, right? Full of the Holy Spirit so that we die, he lives in us and through us. How would it sound if I said, Aaron is patient? Could I look at my family with a straight face and read it that way? He's kind. He's never rude. Why y'all laughing? Y'all don't know me. No, unfortunately, some of you do know me. He doesn't keep record of wrong. He believes, hopes, endures all things. He never fails. Here's what it looks like. He says, love is patient. There's two kinds of patience biblically. One is a patience in circumstance. The other is a patience in relationship. It's talking about relationship. When we talk about love, just this description of love in and of itself, you know what it tells you? Loving is hard. Look at the description. Relationships are hard. People are difficult. And I don't mean everybody around you. I mean you and me. You know why you need patience? Because people get on your nerves and you get on people's nerves. You know why you need patience? Because people disappoint. They let us down. They stab us in the back. They talk ill of us. The very thought that when you talk patience in the scriptures, many times the term in some translations is long, what? Suffering. To suffer long. It says it's patient, it's kind. To say that someone is kind is to give the idea that they're sweet to all. There's a gentleness with them and the way that they deal with people. They're kind to everyone. When I read that, one of the things that I always think about, how would I have responded if I was there with the woman caught in adultery? Because every bit of me wants to tell myself, I'd be like Jesus. And when they threw her down and the crowds were calling for her to be stoned, I want to believe that I might have been the one to reach down and to comfort her. But you know what the reality is? There are so many times in my life I probably would have been caught up with everybody else. My fear is that I might have actually picked up a stone and judged her. To think that the only person there in that moment that could have judged her and had the right to actually be unkind to her was the only one that was kind. Isn't that mercy and grace? Giving someone what they don't deserve and giving them that which they don't. And I mean, think about it. Grace and mercy together to give them what they don't deserve and not give them what they do deserve. It encompasses so much. And Jesus, with all of that kindness, comforts her. Now, he told her, don't sin anymore. You need to change the way that you're living. He didn't forsake the truth so that he might love. He spoke the love or spoke the truth in love to her, and he remained kind. I love Lincoln so much about his life. President Lincoln is is amazing. He had a defense secretary. Back then it would have, you know, it it was under a different name. They would have called it the war minister. Mr. Stanton was the war minister during the Lincoln years, and it's interesting because President Lincoln 
was hated by Mr. Stanton. Before Mr. Stanton actually was allowed to be the defense minister, he would say things about President Lincoln like, he's a cunning clown. He called him, and I'm not sure what this means or how he comes up with it, the original gorilla. He said, I don't know why all the tradesmen and all the people that work for the zoos go to Africa to find a gorilla. All they have to do is go to Springfield, Illinois to find one. That's what he said of the president. But the president never had an ill word back towards him. In fact, he knew him to be brilliant. And he made him the war secretary. And as you all know, the time came when an assassin's bullet killed President Lincoln. And they moved his body off to a side room there in the theater. And someone walked in and Stanton was standing over the president's body, looking at his silent face, tears running down his face. And the words that he said about Abraham Lincoln were, there lies the greatest ruler of men that the world have ever, has ever seen. You see, there is a truth that when we look at patience and we look at kindness, that those things can conquer a heart in the end. And that's what happened with Mr. Stanton. It says that love doesn't envy. There's two kinds of envy. There's the envy that wants what you have. It's really more of jealousy and very similar to jealousy, but the second type of envy is worse, and it shows just how malignant our soul is. He says that love can actually let good things happen to people without being bitter about it. Have you ever met somebody that can be so bitter that when something good happens to another, they can't even celebrate it? Why them? Why not me? He says that love doesn't act that way. It's not envious. He goes on and says, not only is it not envious, but he said it doesn't boast. Folks, the reason it doesn't boast is because someone who truly is walking with God recognizes first and foremost that I have nothing to boast about. Before Jesus found me, I was a wretched sinner. Before Christ changed me, I was a sinner who was destined for hell. I couldn't change myself. I'm going to be real honest. I know people didn't like me before Christ. I didn't like myself before Christ. I didn't change myself. I didn't save myself. I don't do what I do in the kingdom work of God because it's something in me that I developed or I've done. Listen, he has simply given me gifts and asked me to use them for the benefit of the body of believers. But there's no reason to say anything to me because none of it is from me. It's all from him. And folks, when we begin to live that way, it keeps us from boasting. It keeps us from comparing ourselves. The reason we compare ourselves that way is because we forget who we are in the greater scheme of things and what we were before Jesus Christ found us. He changed us. He saved us. He's the one that has gifted us. And everything good is from God. And folks, we cannot love ourselves when we truly understand what God has done for us. True love, and I love this statement, will always be far more impressed with its own unworthiness than its own merit. He goes on and says, love isn't self-important. It doesn't think of itself more highly. It doesn't think that it deserves more and better than everybody else. It's not rude. I want you to think about that for a second. Go home and listen to yourself this week. The way you speak shows your heart. Look at how you talk to your wife. Look at how you talk to your children, your husband. Look at how you deal with people at work. He says that when you truly, truly love someone, it's not rude. You're not rude with them. He goes on and says, you, you don't demand your own rights. Two types of people in the world, those that demand their rights and those that recognize their responsibilities. We ought to be a people that recognize 
We're not owed anything. We actually are responsible to give. God has blessed us. God has loved us. We are to turn around and show that love to everyone, even if they are are our enemies. And we don't sit back and say, when they do it for me, I'll do it for them. Folks, truly loving somebody means that you love them when they're unlovable. When they don't have the capacity in that moment to even love you back. And if that makes you mad and you say, well, that's stupid. Listen, that is what Jesus Christ did for you. That is how you got saved. Is because you kept slapping his hand away. You kept running from him. He kept pursuing you. And when you were unfaithful, guess what? He was faithful. says love isn't angry it doesn't lose its temper he goes on and says that it doesn't keep record of wrong it's an accountant's term literally it means when when the term it means keep record of wrong what it literally means in the greek is that it's it's an accountant who whenever there's a debt guess what they do they write it down so they won't forget it that's what keeping a record of wrong is you owe me something so i write it down so there's no way i'll forget it He says, listen, if we're not careful, that's how we fail to love people. Have you ever had an argument with a spouse and you can't just deal with exactly what is going on in that moment, but you have to dredge up everything that's ever happened? You ever look at your kids and rather than dealing with what they're dealing with today, you talk about all the ways that they failed you over the years because you're frustrated? Folks, loving someone is very different than that. Folks, There's nothing more weighty than giving someone the thought or the belief that they are no better than their worst day. Do you realize how heavy that weight is? That you're the sum of your worst mistake, your worst moment. Nobody can live under that. What we need is, From God is a willingness for God to say, listen, the debt's been paid. The forgiveness is offered and you say, well, you know what? They haven't paid the debt. Listen, they don't owe you the debt. They owe God the debt. And Jesus paid the debt. And if he has forgiven you, guess what our responsibility is to them? To forgive them too. We don't need any other reason. We don't need any other motivation from God. He says, how can you receive my grace, my mercy, my forgiveness, my patience, my kindness, How can you take all of that and never give it? He said it doesn't rejoice in evil. And what that means is, listen, not only should we never celebrate when someone falls into sin because we are happy that they're about to understand the consequence of the choice, But we certainly, if we love someone, won't join them in that sin. If you love somebody, listen, if we know what sin does, doesn't sin kill and destroy? It steals, it kills, it destroys. It leads to death. That's what sin does. It ruins lives and lives around that person. And if we love somebody, we never rejoice in their sinning. But what should we do as believers? We should rejoice in the truth. It means that when you love someone, you don't watch them wallow in sin. You don't watch them choose a direction in their life that's going to lead them toward destruction. If you love them, you stop them. If you love them, you wave your hands and say, there's death ahead. There's destruction ahead. I love you enough to not let you stay there. And so I'm going to confront you with the truth in love. Because folks, if we won't do that for people, then it's hard to say, I love them. How could, I mean, just imagine if we knew there was some contagion somewhere and and they were about to walk in and could be contaminated if we knew that was the truth and we just didn't say anything would we not be culpable and how could we say we love them if we let them walk in and that's the same with sin we love people enough to talk with them to share with them to confront them we let the word of god rebuke and reproof and correct and teach He says, love never fails. Thirdly, love is eternal. 
I love this section because it simply goes on and, and, and says about love. It never fails, but he says if there's prophecy, if there's tongues, if there's knowledge, he says it's all going away. He says these gifts that you're measuring yourselves by, he says they're not eternal. The one thing that is eternal, guess what? It's love. And why is love eternal? Because God is love and God is eternal. And when we get to heaven, all that is going to matter is the relationship that we have with each other and that we have with the Heavenly Father. And I'm telling you, he's saying, don't fall into the trap of thinking that you are more than you are, of thinking about things that don't really matter in this life. He says, what matters is love. He stresses the absolute permanency of love. I love the way the Song of Solomon, uh, the way Solomon puts it. He says, many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. You can't quench love. He says, love is the greatest because it continues. It grows even in eternity. When we're in heaven, think about what he's saying here. He's going to say, tongues are going to cease. Prophecies are going to cease. Why? Because we're in heaven with God. We're standing there face to face with him. He says there'll be no use. Even when you think about faith, hope, and love, he says those are the three greatest things. They come up over and over in our Christian walk. We need faith. We need hope. We need love. But he says love is the greatest. Why? Because love is the only one that lasts. One day when we stand face to face with Jesus, guess what? We won't need faith anymore because we will see with our eyes what we have believed in our heart. We won't need hope because everything will be realized and even faith and hope will fade away. But love, love is the thing that lasts. And folks, it's the gift that he's given us, not just for eternity, but for this life. And folks, even though we cannot fully grasp it or understand it or even act on it fully the way that we should, listen to what he says. He says, listen, these things are only in part right now. They're not permanent. He says, but the perfect is coming. He says, when I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. He's saying there's a maturity that's going to come when we stand before Jesus face to face. We will see him and know him as he is, just like he knows us, who we are. He goes on and says, we see in a mirror dimly. What he's saying is back in our day, or you know, in our day, we have mirrors. We can see reflected back exactly what's in front of us because we have modern mirrors. Back in that day, that wasn't until like the 13th century. Back in biblical days, the best they had was polished steel. They would polish it and polish it and polish it until you could see some of a reflection in it, but it wasn't a perfect reflection. Like you ladies would have a cow trying to put makeup on and polish steel. He says, we can see dimly, we can see figures, but we can't see like you can in a modern mirror. They couldn't see that back then. And he says, but there is a day when we won't need a mirror. Why? Because we'll be standing face to face. And reality will come crashing in. We'll know what true love looks like. And he says, love is exalted. Because he says, listen, it's supreme. As great as faith is and as great as hope is, love is still greater. Folks, literally the scripture says that there is no debt you owe except, guess what? The debt of love. You say, what could I do to ever pay back Jesus for what he's done for me? What debt? He doesn't tell you to pay for it. He doesn't tell you to earn it with your good deeds or anything else. You know what he simply says? He says, listen, the debt that you owe is love. Who? Love the Lord your God. Well, I mean, you see how it's, it, it's, it's been that way from the beginning. Love the Lord your God and love your neighbors. That's the debt. That's the obligation. That's the responsibility. And as the musicians are coming today, I just want to encourage you today. To go back to the question that I asked you a few minutes ago. I want you to pray about what does it really sound like when I put my name in front of all those statements.
Would those that I say that I love, would they agree? Yeah, you love us. You're not rude. Yeah, you love us. You don't keep record of wrong. Yeah, you love us. You are so patient with us. Yeah, you love us. You are so kind because, guys, we can't have it both ways. You can't say, I love you. It is the easiest thing to say. It is the hardest thing to do. And most of us in our life, we have settled for a definition of love that is nothing more than a feeling. And that's why we can divorce a person and say, well, I love them. We can abuse a person and say, I love them. We can watch a person stumble into sin and their lives be destroyed and everybody around them, but we don't love them enough to say something. But the whole time we say, well, I I love them. Folks, we've got to look at our definition of love today. And it's one thing to say, yes, I know that Jesus is all of those things. What about you? What about me? Can that be said of us? Maybe you're here today and you don't know Christ as Lord and Savior. My hope today is that you'll give your life to Jesus. He loves you. He died to save you. If you came in here and you wonder about your eternity, you wonder about what it would be like to stand before God with all of your sin. How could he love me? How could he forgive me? Listen, the Bible says that God loved you so much he sent his son to die on the cross for your sins. And if you would believe in him, worship him, follow him, obey him. That word believe is a little deeper than we think most times. He says he'll save you. Believe he died on the cross that he took your punishment because he did. That he died in your place because he did. And you can be forgiven because the son of God died in your place to pay the price for your sins. He was buried. He rose again. Do you believe that? Are you willing to surrender your life to him and say, Jesus, I will follow you. You are my king and you are my master. And Lord, I will do exactly what you've asked me to do. And Lord, I can't do it. I'm asking you to do it through me. I'm going to die so you can live. I'm going to give up my rights, my life, so that you can have ownership of me. And I'll be who you created me to be. I'll change with your help, God. If you've never prayed to receive Christ as Lord and Savior, I pray that today you will because you are loved. But church, does the world know of the love of the Father because of you? Father, we just come to you today. Search us. Look in our hearts, Lord. Don't let us leave here lying to ourselves saying that we love you and we love others when when we can't put our name to that and see a resemblance to the things that you say love is. Lord, we don't want to just make love a, a, a word that means nothing. That's what the devil has done. He's taken such a beautiful word and he's, he's, he's ruined it. And we've accepted his definition, whether it be lust, Or they just be a description of the way that we feel. But Lord, may we regain its meaning today and recognize that it doesn't matter what we do in ministry. It doesn't matter how many Sundays we show up at church. It doesn't matter if we go around the world. If we don't love, Lord, what have we done? We're nothing. We accomplish nothing. And the world just tunes us out. Speak to us today. And Lord, if someone's accepted you as Lord and Savior, give them the courage to just come forward and say, Aaron, I've prayed to receive Jesus. I ask him to forgive me and I believe he died for me and rose again and I want to follow him. If someone is praying that prayer right now, Lord, I pray that they have the courage to say, I want to be baptized and I want to be part of this church. As others are praying, just send them out into these aisles that they might confess you and let us know that they're following you. We ask in Jesus' name.